between the states and they joined up with Cantrill And it was over in Clay County that Frank and Jesse finally learned to kill Hello, welcome to the American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time podcast, and um, I have been continuing my read-through of the Library of America's anthology of Civil War writings, and I'm pretty excited about this episode, actually. Um, you know, there's been times in this series where it's been a bit of a slog, especially when there's been a lot of battles to talk about and accounts of battles and stuff like that but this set of documents all set in the aftermath of the battle of gettysburg um has a lot of interesting things to 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 talk about um so uh let's let's just jump into it um i mentioned in the last episode that i was kind of disappointed there wasn't more on the on the draft riots uh the the new york draft riots but i was wrong about that there actually were a few other follow-up documents here that talk about the new york city draft riots such as we got a diary um dated july 23rd which speaks of the four days of the draft riots from the perspective of a rich new york uh woman now she is a democrat and she is sympathetic with the rioters um particularly of uh the i mean she's she presents herself as sympathetic to the irish working class here uh, blaming them for the riot, and I'm, I'm really not going to get into that particular question because I'm not really, uh, I don't have the knowledge to really get into that. I do know that's the impression, is that uh, Democratic voters of immigrant backgrounds tended to be more supportive of the draft riots. Um, you know, and the Democratic Party was, was, of course, part of that. But here's what she says. She says, uh, on Sunday, we went to see Mrs. Jarvis and Mr. James T. Brady, who had just arrived from Washington. I saw S Susanna Brady, who talked in the most violent manner against the Irish and in favor of the blacks. I felt quite differently, although very sorry and much outraged at the cruelties inflicted. I had hoped it will give the Negroes a lesson, for since the war commenced, they have been so insolent to be unbearable. I can't endure free blacks. They are immoral with all their piety. Uh, the principal actors in the mob were boys, and I think they were Americans. Catherine, my seamstress, tells me that the plundering was done by the people in the neighborhood who were looking on and who, as the mob broke, the windows open went to steal. And so she's not overly, I mean, she's not saying she supports the riots itself, but there's definitely a preference here for, um, or this idea that uh, free blacks need to be kind of put down a notch um, by, by, uh, by others. In this case, it, it, She's kind of associated with the Irish. Um, the interesting point here is how she has this concern about free blacks. I think this was not an uncommon view in the North. There were many pro-war Democrats uh, or even uh, certainly among peace Democrats, this, this view was, was held. But even among others, and maybe some Republicans too, that, yeah, maybe end slavery but we don't necessarily want an interracial society this is why i think one of the reasons you see lincoln until quite late in his career playing with the idea of colonization as a long-term solution to this question um, obviously it's unreasonable it was unreasonable then and it never really made any sense uh in terms of demography or logistics or whatever but um politically it made sense uh to maybe 
address these racist uh, voters. So anyways, this is a, a pretty interesting uh, perspective on it from someone who's a little pro-clutching at times about the riots themselves, but, but you know, kind of on, in some ways blaming blacks for this. And this idea that free blacks are particularly um, immoral, what is she, insolent, Especially when the war, since the war broke out, that's that's an interesting point of view. Like somehow, as long as there was the threat of slavery, that black people were more controlled. But once slavery ends in the context of the war, then you get more unruliness. I don't know where that perspective quite is coming from, but uh, she certainly has it. The other document we have here on the on the riot is by actually Herman Melville, so that's wonderful. One of these days, I'm going to have to get to that fourth volume of Melville's writings that's published by the Library of America. I think it's like uh, uh, the poetry is mostly in it. Um, but this is uh, based on his cousin, Henry Gavin Root, who, who was part of the riots or witnessed them. But basically, this is quite a hostile look at them, and it's shaped... Uh, he calls them like the atheists, the atheist roar of riot at one point. Um, but, I mean, listen to this. The town was taken by its rats, ship rats, the rats of the wharves. Uh, a maritime connection here to, again, maybe the immigrants being associated with the riot. All civil charms and priestly spells which lay hearts, held hearts in awe, fear-bound, subject, subjected to a better sway. Then sway of self. These, like a dream, dissolve. A man rebounds whole eons back in nature. Um... So, uh, yeah, what else does he, later on? He says, give, uh, give thanks devout, nor being thankful heeds the grimy slur of the Republic's faith implied, which holds that man is naturally good and more is nature's Roman never to be scourged. I'm not quite sure what it means, but there's certainly some kind of religious, um, overtones here, which of course was part of the, the, the draft riots themselves. So next we have uh, Henry Adams writing to his brother, Charles Francis Adams Jr. And this is uh, a pretty personal letter because Charles Francis Adams was at the Battle of Gettysburg. And so this is speaking both of the victory uh, in Gettysburg and Vicksburg and also, um, you know, his personal concern for, for his brother's life. In terms of uh, Henry Adams' job, of course, he's uh, the aide to his father, who's the ambassador. In London, he makes it pretty clear that this closes the door on any European intervention on the side of of the Confederacy, and you know I think that door closed earlier. Certainly, these Henry Adams letters are a good window into the diplomatic environment, uh, what's going on in London, and I get the sense that door had already been pretty much closed. But um, he's saying here that's pretty much the end of it. Another interesting thing here is is Henry Adams seems to get his hand on some Southern newspapers, and one he mentions here is called the Index, which I've never heard of before. But he suggests to his brother that there is growing voices for an end to the war in the South, and that's of course significant because, as most historians I think now accept, resistance was key to resistance from the South itself was key to Confederate uh, uh, defeat. Um, as we'll see in a later document in this episode, actually, there was like, you know, those those voices were growing. Maybe not 
peace at any cost, but peace with honor of some sort, you know, peace that might preserve slavery. But then there's going to be growing voices who say peace at any at any cost, right? Uh, we just don't want to fight this war anymore, uh, not to preserve uh, an institution that benefits only the ruling class. Um, now, you know, not all whites gave up their loyalty to slavery, certainly, and that's from all classes. I mean, the Confederate soldiers were mostly poor, and they were fighting for slavery and knew it. But that doesn't mean there weren't significant numbers of poor whites whose commitment to that institution wavered when the death toll rose or the, just the pressure on their families rose, and those voices starting to get louder and louder, it seems. And then next we have George Meade writing to Henry Halleck. Halleck, of course, is like high rank in the... He's like the headquarters of the army in, in Washington. And this is kind of a response. I guess, like, Lincoln never sent that letter blaming Meade for not pursuing Lee after the Battle of Gettysburg, but, I, but he certainly must have heard from Halleck or from others that there was concerns about why you didn't strike right away and we talked about this in the last episode a little bit you know that you know Meade's victory at Gettysburg was was outstanding uh not considering it and there was all kind of risks involved with pursuing that attack plus he had to defend Washington so there were reasons for him not to pursue it but it's certainly weighing on his mind a little bit uh, that there was this criticism around there. So he's writing to Halleck about this. I, actually, I think Halleck wrote to Meade saying, you did a great job, don't worry too much about this talk about the president not being happy with your your decision not to pursue Lee. And Meade responds to this in this letter, and he basically reiterates his defenses of how he, he didn't know really Lee's position. He really wasn't in, he couldn't really make that attack and guarantee success it would have maybe turned a victory into a defeat and all that and 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 he's you can tell he's still pretty sensitive and concerned about that um but he's also pretty glad to hear of of the praise from halleck too um but okay anyways um oh we got there's a couple letters here i'll deal with them all at once because they're spread throughout this this section which um is Robert E. Lee to Jefferson Davis. So the first letter is he's taking blame for the um, Battle of Gettysburg. I think this one's fairly famous. I think I've heard about it before. But he takes the blame for the failure at the Battle of Gettysburg. All right, that's fine. But the second letter has him resigning or offering to resign, which is uh, what bullshit cowardice, you know. I don't know why anyone, like, has any fondness for this man. Offering to resign, you know, try. Well, I lost a battle, so best best go home to Virginia and, and retire or whatever. And then we get Jefferson Davis, you know, not accepting his his resignation. So whatever, who 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 really the fuck cares? But I have to say, I'm not too impressed by by Lee here. At least he does take some credit. He takes uh, some credit for uh, losing the battle, which was a great thing for history. So. Bravo for sucking, Robert E. Lee. Good job. Um, what else? Oh, Hannah Johnson to Abe Lincoln. These are fun letters. Uh, we've seen a few of these before. There's not many. I wish there'd be more. I'm sure many of these have been preserved and could be read by an inquiring scholar. But these are the letters by 
enslaved men and women, formerly enslaved men and women, writing Lincoln about the question of emancipation and, and reconstruction and what's going to be the fate of black people after the war and all that kind of stuff. Now, this particular letter by Hannah Johnson is about uh, her son who served in the 54th Regiment and, um, and fought at Fort Wagner but did not die and was not captured in that battle. So um, what she's writing about is very key because Frederick Douglass is going to write Lincoln about this. And, and deal directly with Lincoln about this is the Confederate policy of taking prisoners of war, black prisoners of war, and re-enslaving them, re-putting them back into slavery. Um, this We've talked about this a while ago. This had been the policy ever since the Emancipation Proclamation, where basically any black, whether they were free or not, would be enslaved um, if they were captured. Um, I suppose if, if they, under Southern law, not under national law, of course, but under Southern law, where still had owners, so they'd be returned to those owners. I don't know what other like free blacks serving in the army might have done. Of course, that's not the majority of them, so it's not the biggest. I'm not, I'm not sure what was going to happen to them. Maybe just sold into slavery to fund the government. But this was, of course, a big concern that Lincoln wasn't doing enough to respond to this, you know, in some way. And it's not quite clear how he would have responded. You know, like if the policy of like executing white officers as who are leading black soldiers as instigators of slave revolt, like how do you re respond to that? Do you execute Confederate officers as well? I mean, that seems legally troublesome, I guess. But anyways, she's saying we need to treat these um, black soldiers. We need to defend these black soldiers as much as we can. Um, one not one ought or ought one man to own another law for or not who made the law. Surely the poor slave did not. So it's wicked and a horrible outrage. There's no sense in it because a man has lived by robbing all his life and his father before him should not complain because the stolen things found on him are taken. Robbing the colored people of their labor is but a small part of their robbery. Their souls are almost taken. They are made brutes of often. You know all about this. Uh, so she's hopeful that Lincoln's going to do something about this. Now, it gets more interesting with Frederick Douglass, who we have a few documents from, um, where he actually says at one point, because he says, because Lincoln's not doing enough to respond to this Confederate policy, I'm going to stop recruiting. And we've seen before how he was urging quite vigorously for black people to serve in the army um, and to working to recruit them. He says, I'm going to stop doing that. You're not going to get my voice. You're not going to get the Douglass Monthly to try to recruit uh, uh, these former slaves to serve in the army for you anymore unless you're willing to, to stand up and really fight this policy. So this resistance um, by Hannah Johnson and Frederick Douglass worked. And it did work to get a policy change by the United States. So the policy change was that for every soldier of the United States killed in violation of the laws of war, that would mean executing white officers or, or black soldiers. Um, a rebel soldier would be executed. Now, of course, you have massacres of black soldiers. So that order is passed. But or, or, anyways, but I, the Fort Pillow Massacre uh, led to um, 
you know, like a, over a hundred black soldiers were just murdered um, in the massacre, right? Let me find the exact number. I'm not sure, but it was a significant number. And the policy is was set here, July 30th, 1963. The policy was this order of retaliation, which said for every black soldier or any soldier killed outside of the rules rules of war, a Confederate soldier would be would be killed. But then do you actually execute that many um, Confederate soldiers? I mean, what's, I mean, that's a significant, like, loss of life, right? Now, maybe you could target that towards the people who perpetuated the Fort Pillow Massacre, uh, if you were ever to capture them and trace them to that attack. But people were saying, yeah, you got to do this. You got to follow through on this policy. But apparently Lincoln just sort of kicked the can down the road until the war was over and never came up again. So... That was part of it. Now, the other part of it, I don't know how often it was enacted, but for every Union soldier enslaved, the retaliation policy called for a rebel soldier to be placed in hard labor on public works. Now, maybe that was done more often. But long story short, this convinced Frederick Douglass of Lincoln's, you know, that Lincoln was properly responding to this policy and he would continue to help um, them. He says... Um, we have research assurances from Major Stearns that the government of the United States is already taking measures which will secure for the captured colored soldiers at Charleston and also the same protections against slavery, cruelty, extended to white soldiers. What ought to have been done at the beginning comes late, but it comes. The poor colored soldiers have purchased this interference dearly. It really seems that nothing of justice, liberty, or humanity can come to us except through tears and blood, which of course is consistent with what Douglas had been saying all along. So he writes on this a little bit more in uh, in an August article in uh, the Douglas Monthly, which kind of talks about this policy. And, and he's pretty hard on Lincoln here, saying Lincoln hasn't done enough to defend black soldiers. Um, but, you know, he concludes in this article, For every black prisoner slain in cold blood, Mr. Jefferson Davis should be made to understand that one rebel officer should suffer death. Now, actually, I kind of like the way uh, Douglas here frames it, like targeting officers. Maybe that was the original retaliation policy was targeting, you know, executing officers, not maybe common soldiers. Um, yeah, do it that way. But I'm not sure how much this policy was implemented, if at all. It seems more of a threat. But anyways, all really interesting stuff in these these documents. Um, we also have uh, Walt Whitman again visiting the wounded. I think we saw that before. Um, so just gruesome stuff here and with the hospitals. Uh, but moving on to the question of uh, black soldiers, uh, we got the equal pay protests in the middle of 1863 as well. Um, and of course, the story, you all know this, right? The 54th Massachusetts and other black soldiers were promised equal pay with white soldiers. But in June, they were told otherwise. Um, so they were paid according to the Militia Act of July 17th, um, where the idea was black soldiers would be smoothly serving as, as workers, as military laborers, and therefore paid less. 
But of course, by this point, black soldiers have already been fighting in the front lines, dying. We've got the Battle of Fort Wagner and other battles we've talked about here. So of course, this opens up for uh, um, opens up the gate to protests. And here we have in the weekly Anglo-African, which is a here's so many of these newspapers that I never heard of before, but this is another one of them. We have an article about these protests in South Carolina where this fighting and these black units are stationed about um, about equal pay. And of course, there, there were protests about that and refusal of pay, refusal of taking any pay and all that. And here is a, uh, a clear case of that. That, pro that the, this demand for equal pay. All right. Uh, oh, a really fun one. One I really like. I just love the documents in this set. I wish there was more like this and less long descriptions of the battles. But I guess an anthology like this, you got to kind of serve everyone's interests and needs. So whatever. Um, this is a, a Private Fisk of the 2nd Vermont Infantry serving. He was at Gettysburg and he later on served in Virginia. And he's talking about camp life in August of 1863. So it seems like the war sort of slowed down a little bit um, after the Battle of Gettysburg. Both sides sort of settled back into the facing each other in Northern Virginia. Uh, of course, things would heat up shortly. But this is a, it's a fun little document because he's talking about like life in the camp and how they pass the time, um, the hardships they face, but also just the stuff they do when they're not training or, or fighting you know sports playing chess bag bad gammon uh playing cards uh, making mary a dull many a dull and this was our that's great um great line there um but he also talks about how they had to like build up their shelters their permanent shelters and stuff and they pillaged they basically stole wood from local um farms and stuff and he actually thinks is this good to do you know is this moral to do he says even constant he even questions the constitutionality which is fun you got this private soldier reflecting on how constitutional it may or may not be to, to steal wood from a from a southern farmer and he's also worried about how it looks he says like we kind of look like hooligans doing this um I must confess, it looks a little looks it looks a little barbarous to go to a man's dooryard almost as we did in the Millers at Waterloo. Tear down his barn and shed under his very eyes. This erring brother could only look demurely on and witness the progress of our destruction. He was powerless to prevent it, but they not only tore down his building, they carried away his garden fence and ransacked the spoiled and spoiled his garden. <laughs> you can tell I have very a lot of sympathy for those southern farmers. I'm sure he was able to petition for some compensation for his barn some point after the war was over. Um, yeah. This is kind of the moral uh, kind of reflection on plundering these farms. It's, it's just kind of funny for me. He even says at the end, I thought it would be safe for me in the end to shirk the responsibility and let them come through someone else. And certainly it was is consistent with my inclination on this particular occasion. Generally, I'm not behind when secession sinners are being punished after this fashion. Yeah. Nice. Um, okay. 
too much. That's enough. That's enough fun. So next we have Frederick Douglass talking to George L. Stearns about a meeting, um, writing to him about a meeting with the president. This is kind of a follow up on this question of, you know, Douglass's continued commitment to recruit black soldiers after being assured of the that Confederate war crimes would be responded to in kind. And um, this was part of this was he says, I'll go down actually to like Mississippi and recruit black soldiers there. But you got to make me an officer. But eventually he didn't go because the War Department did not do that. And bravo to Frederick Douglass. I mean, he's... Other people would have accepted the insult to, you know, in order to have the opportunity to recruit these soldiers and, and win the war effort. But Douglass always, in a very classy fashion, sticks to his guns. And it's just a lot of respect to, to him for that. Because that's, that's how you get respect is by sticking to your principles and fighting for them, right? When the minute you surrender on one thing, you're going to be asked to surrender on something else. And and Douglas had the right approach here. All right, so now we come to it. You probably noticed my bumper here changed for this episode. It'll just be a one-off thing. That's uh, of course Warren Zeffon's song on Frank and Jesse James, and they are famous for having um, served under William C. Quantrill uh, during his raid on Lawrence. Um, and so Quantrill was like a guerrilla fighter in, in like Kansas, Missouri, in that area. And, um, and I don't know how much Frank and Jesse James were actually, you know, active in this particular, than the Lawrence massacre, but the Lawrence massacre happened nonetheless. And it's, a uh, some more evidence of, of, uh, you know, Confederate, like just overall shittiness. <laughs> I was going to sarcastically say bravery, but I don't know if you would catch my sarcasm over the over the air. So it's just them being shitty, like always. Um, but Cantrill, I have to think that like in that Hateful Eight um, movie, that Confederate uh, veteran character. Or is he the son of a Confederate victim or something? It's got to be based on Cantrill. It seems, um, you know, it's out west. It's, I'm guessing that maybe that's who Tarantino had in mind when he created that character. But I don't know for sure. Um, if, if you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. But anyways, uh, Cantrill, he was a criminal before the war. Doing slave catching and, and, and slave rustling and things. And then... Um, He's even stealing from other slaveholders. He's this, he's this much of a jerk. But then when the war comes out, he becomes this guerrilla fighter, cavalry commander, some bullshit. Um, but in the summer of 63, you have this attack on Lawrence. Of course, Lawrence is the site of Kansas anti-slavery activism. It's the, it's the center of abolitionist sentiment in Kansas. It's, you know, back to bleeding Kansas before the war even began. So it's a symbol of, of abolitionism and a symbol of the anti-slavery struggle. And so it's targeted and the Union soldiers there are defeated. And then he goes on to uh, basically commit a massacre, killing over 100 people, mostly unarmed men and boys. And uh, the skillful Cantrell Raiders... Uh, killing 164 civilians uh, with their 
force of 300 men lost 40 men. So how, I don't know how you manage that. I guess that's um. I guess they really sucked. But anyways, we got a document about it. Richard Cordley's account of it. This is—I have to believe this is maybe one of our major sources about this uh, Lawrence um, massacre because it's—it's long and significant and detailed. It is actually this was actually submitted into. Um, where was this written? This was written for uh, church publications after the after the massacre, but it's quite detailed, and it goes into the various incidents. Very like. Um, like almost moment by moment. I mean, the journalistic work that went into this report is pretty significant. It's it's almost good enough for like a congressional record, I think. Uh, he even gets into the amount of property damage here, a lot of personal anecdotes of of the massacre, and it's just a great document um, that I think fills out that picture of that. If you want to know more about the Lawrence Massacre, I think going to this Richard Quarterly's account is a good place to start. So I won't say too much about it and let just point out that this document exists and, and maybe you should read it. It's, um, you know, quite a sounding. I think I've heard of the Lawrence Massacre before, but I never really thought much about it. All right. Next we have U.S. Grant writing to Abe Lincoln about um, a couple of issues. One is uh, the seizure of mobile, like the plan to do that and, and why Grant didn't do it immediately after the fall of Vicksburg. But mostly he's talking about how, um, on the one hand, black soldiers have been significant to the war effort, devastating the Southern economy, providing troops for the North. But he also talks about how uh, like patrols and Confederate cavalry and things are making it diff more difficult for slaves to get to Union lines. So he's expressing some concern about that. Um, and how he's going to send, he's sending troops basically to try to bring back slaves. So he's actively um, liberating slaves with his, with his army. And we, we see earlier on in the war, not that long before in the Vicksburg campaign, even Grant was a little bit concerned about what this would mean for the war effort, but by the, by the summer of 63, his attitude had changed. And I think that's fair to say for many of the, of the voices we see in this anthology. It's just the shift since the Emancipation Proclamation was so dramatic, like the shift from a war for union to a war for uh, a revolution for, for the end of slavery. It's being accepted by more and more people at a quite a rapid rate. And I, I think the evidence of that obviously is in the election of 64, but um, we're seeing it like generals who are maybe had concerns changing their mind uh, just in a matter of months. Um, more evidence of, of changing uh, perspectives is in a, a peace meeting set in North Carolina, which we have an evidence, we, we have a document of a report of. And this is, um, um, it actually says here between July and September, there's 100 peace meetings in North, in North Carolina alone. Now, these aren't saying peace at any cost. These are people saying we should pursue peace if it's going to mean uh, a defense of Southern rights or an honorable peace, whatever that means. Probably means keeping slavery, things like that. But the fact that you have more and more voices calling for peace in the South is significant. Now, this particular movement was ended by violence. The peace meetings ended in September 
when Confederate soldiers basically uh, destroyed the office, the newspaper offices of the people advocating peace. So it took vi- it took like violent suppression to end this particular peace movement. It wasn't going to end it for everyone. There was going to be a continued effort to end the war from, you know, Southerners trying to end the war for whatever reason, varying from just the, the trauma of the war for their families to, of course, enslaved men and women actively trying to end the war by carrying guns and running away and destroying the Southern economy, if possible, to, you know, more moderate voices like this, more upper class voices saying we got to end the war because, you know, we're going to lose anyway. So let's try to get a favorable piece out of it. But those voices had to be suppressed. Um, well, I think that's um, something we need to. Um, it's part of the story. It's a big part of the story. It's not. Um, it's also showing the rapid change of the Emancipation Proclamation, I think. I think uh, these meetings probably would not be, be been had had it not been for Lincoln's forceful commitment to ending slavery. Uh, anything else? Oh, uh, this is a fun one to Abraham Lincoln writing to James Conkling. He was invited to address a meeting in Springfield. Um, and he couldn't go, obviously, he's busy. He couldn't go all the way to Illinois for a meeting, but he does send a letter. So he said, talks of various things in this letter. He talks about the changing military fortunes, how if, if Meade can push Lee out of Pennsylvania, though, you know, eventually the Southern army can be defeated. It can be defeated and will be defeated. He talks about that like uh, in pretty confidently at this point, which is a change of how he felt maybe earlier in the, in the war. Um, and he says there can only be compromise. See, see, I think this audience he's speaking to are people who may be, if not peace Democrats, are people who maybe are unhappy with some aspects of what Lincoln's doing, such as emancipation. And he says compromise can only come with those who control the rebel army. Quote, or with the people first liberated from the domination of that army by the success of our own, success of our own army. So he says pretty unequivocally, if the leadership doesn't surrender, that surrender is going to be forced on them by former slaves and our army. Um, he also addresses concerns they might have about the Emancipation Proclamation's constitutionality. And he says, well, I have war powers, which is, of course, the, the line he'd been using all along. He's completely right about that. Um, quote, you'll say you say you'll not fight to free Negroes. Some of them seem willing to fight for you, but no matter. Fight you then exclusively to save the Union. I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Whenever you shall have conquered all resistance to the Union, I shall urge you to continue fighting. It'll be an apt time then for you to declare that you will not fight to free Negroes. So, yeah, bravo, Lincoln. Put it to them. If you're going to equivocate, um, well, fight whatever you want and we'll, we'll, work, out the, we'll work it out when the, when the war's over. That's kind of what he says here. Um, Anything else? Uh, a few other things we can mention here. We got uh, Charles Francis Adams to Lord Russell, again talking about uh, where the war's at, um, and again, a more evidence that there's a growing confidence in the North over the eventual success. Um, was this the guy who was like kind of having Southern loyalty or Southern sympathies? 
I think so. And he's basically saying that's not, you know, your your opinion's not really that serious anymore. Um, yeah, I think that's enough. I think there's really some great documents in this section. I probably could have said a lot more about them, but, um, but yeah, um, we'll stop here. Uh, I have two more episodes covering 1863 and early 1864, and then we'll be able to jump into the final volume of this Civil War anthology. It seems I've been doing this forever. This has been really a long series, especially because I haven't like done it every week like I should. But I think I'm going to push through to the end for over the next uh, eight or nine weeks, next couple months, before getting into the Mark Twain series. To spice things up, I've been also doing a series on Stephen King's novel, It. I hope you're enjoying that and listening to that as, as well. So uh, let me know what you think about any of these issues. Uh, the next episode will cover um, September to the winter of 63. Um, uh, we have uh, the Gettysburg Address, of course. Battle of Chattanooga, you know, the battle, the Atlanta campaign is beginning. So that's going to be the next big turning point in the war. And we'll all talk about all that in the next episode. So, uh, as always, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. Jesse James. After Appomattox, it was on the losing side. So no amnesty was granted. And as outlaws, they did ride. They rode against the railroads and they rode against the banks and they rode against the governor.